Welcome to the Falklands War Podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode two, and can you believe that April 2022 will be the 40th anniversary of the war? Those who fought in their 20s would be in their mid-60s now, and there are quite a few thousand vets on both sides commemorating fallen comrades. As you heard last episode, the ownership of the Falklands has been disputed for centuries, although the islanders themselves are very clear who they think they are. They're British. Although, through today's podcast, you'll hear that at times London wasn't so sure about that. What some forget is that the British government in the 1960s was close to doing a deal with the Argentinians to offload the Falklands at a time of great global pressure on the UK, specifically with regard to its many colonial dependencies and its stuttering economy. Both sides in the Falklands-Malvinas dispute have very long memories. We heard how the Spanish had forced the French to hand ownership of Port Egmont on West Falklands back to the British in 1770. We also heard how the British left the port having hammered a plaque on a door in 1773. It was no suggestion too that the Spanish should leave Puerto Soledad as it was known. In fact, the reverse. On a number of occasions over the next few years into the 19th century, the British effectively acknowledged Spanish jurisdiction over the islands. In 1790, the two nations signed the Nootka Sound Convention, by which the British formally renounced their ambitions in South America and the islands adjacent, as the wording went. The Falklands were now occupied by a Spanish colony for the next 50 years until the collapse of the Spanish New World Empire in the first quarter of the 19th century. When we left off last, the British had returned to the Falklands with two warships, the Tyne and Cleo, under the command of Captain James Onslow, and that was on the 2nd of January, 1833. Remember, he had struck the Argentinian flag and raised the Union Jack. It took the British six months to hunt down and capture the bandits who'd taken to living on the Falklands, the vagrant gauchos who refused to accept British rule. One by the name of Antonio Rivero was to be resurrected by the Argentinian military dictatorship as a heroic guerrilla, a kind of nationalist Che Guevarian character of the seal and kelp-covered islands, striding across the wind-whipped heath, fighting the English. Unfortunately for the myth-makers, Antonio was captured and returned to Montevideo, and from then until the Argentinian invasion in 1982, the Falklands remained under constant British rule. I use the word rule rather loosely because after 1833, the British left the islands to the brigands and buccaneers for a number of years rather than restore full law and order. Strategically speaking, the Falklands lacked importance until much later in the century, when coal-fired ships began to navigate the world's oceans. Argentinians are all convinced that the Malvinas belonged to them, outrageously seized in 1833 by a distant European colonial power called England. Across the Atlantic, and an entire century and a half later, British Foreign Secretary Francis Pym was to announce in 1982 that Her Majesty's Government is not in any doubt about our title to the islands, and we never have been. But did possession amount to nine-tenths of the law? The Argentinian case rests on the argument that discovery alone has never been accepted internationally, and they're right. It's not the foundation of sovereignty. Discovery is only valid if it's followed by occupation and a settlement administration. The first colony on these islands was French, but ceded to Spain by de Bougainville. That was the straightest deal when it comes to Falklands ownership. Remember, de Bougainville was paid a cool £250,000 by the Spanish to walk away. After a major dispute with the Spanish, the British relinquished ownership entirely, but left the plaque on the door, 
which is legally immaterial, although an interesting artifact. Spain sent a colony to the islands next, which lasted 40 years. They left in 1811, and the British did nothing about the islands, nor did they claim them. The government of what became Argentina then claimed the Falklands formally in 1820. So the British position then, it's threefold. First, Britain asserted a claim in 1765 and never renounced their claim from that date. London says in 1833 they reasserted their initial claim to fill a political vacuum. No one else takes that assertion with any degree of seriousness. It has the odour of Vladimir Putin about it, I'm afraid. Secondly, since before World War II, the British have moved to a second area of argument, that being the doctrine of prescription. Oh dear, more legal shenanigans. Broadly, this states the continuous possession over a period of time constitutes a right to ownership. If you believe that, then you believe that England still has a right to India. All that this does is affirm that if you're powerful enough and hold a territory, then you own it. A rather debatable position, one would say, because might is not always right. Ask the Ukrainians of 2022 about that one. But the strongest British argument is their third principle, that of self-determination. Those who live on the island decide. An excellent bit of democratic principle, unless, of course, you happen to be Taiwan. Then Beijing doesn't agree. Well, you can't win them all, they say. This is the Northern Ireland principle too. Self-determination, although it galls those who would lay claim to things, the people in the territories you lay claim to have a say. Quite simple, really, but only if the folks with the money and the guns agree. By the outbreak of hostilities in 1982, the islands had a two-thirds indigenous population who were, and still are, passionate Brits. They out-Brit the British. Their affiliation to empire is glorious and grand. The emotional ties to jolly old England, ah, the old country, are breathtakingly complete. If you are in any doubt, then I'm afraid you're reading the wrong social media accounts and probably in the wrong language. The British said for most of the 20th century that respect for the wishes of the inhabitants on matters of sovereignty is enshrined in the United Nations Charter, which is what was at the root of the UN's post-war anti-colonial processes. And now, the Argentinian view. Buenos Aires had also never allowed its claim to lapse. Argentina objected when Britain formally declared a colonial administration in the Falklands in 1842. In the 1880s, the Argentinians and the Chileans negotiated ownership of Patagonia, and as Argentina rounded off the southern uninhabited territories, they asked for the Falklands back. Then in 1908, Britain declared unilateral sovereignty over uninhabited territories south of the Falklands, including South Georgia, the South Sandwich, Orkney and Shetland Islands, along with Graham Land. They called these the Falkland Island Dependencies. Argentina immediately objected their position was now consistent. They said, no, the Falklands were theirs. What followed were grandiose displays of scientific exploration as Argentina, Chile and British warships and scientists sailed around the southern Atlantic, planting blocks on various little frozen inhospitable islands, built a few sheds and pretended to peer inscrutably at lichen and moss, made a great show of counting seals and seabirds, tried to avoid dying of exposure, lopped off the odd toe with frostbite and finally fled the extremely hostile weather. By 1945, everything was on a collision course. African nations, along with others, were to gain independence shortly. And of course, the little islands and the southern Atlantic were in the diplomatic firing line. 
but these things may have ended differently. During the 1930s, Argentina had actually become part of the British commercial system, and under the 1933 Rocker Ransomann Pact, she was granted the same import preferences for her foodstuffs that were given to Commonwealth dominions. Large-scale European immigration from Italy and Germany into Argentina weakened their links with Britain then. Argentina was an almost exclusively European population, with very few Amerindians living there. She chose to distance herself from her South American neighbours in the north, while a military coup in 1930 had instilled nationalism. The inclination towards national socialism, that is, Nazi right-wing sentiment, grew as hundreds of thousands of Argentinians lived in Italy, Germany and Spain, then returned home with flashy armbands and a head full of anti-Semitic lunacy. Naturally, Argentina sidled up to the Axis powers until the Second World War broke out, then shifted into neutrality instead. To be neutral when everyone except the Portuguese and Swiss are taking sides is sometimes not the best policy. The Americans noted this for later diplomatic attention. After 1945, Colonel Juan Perón seized power in Argentina, building a base in what we could call charismatic nationalism, if not national socialism or at least national populism. He died in 1974, and Perón's memory sustained South America's most pernicious political vendettas between the Peronists and the country's military class. Perón ogled Mussolini's fascism, and he admired El Duce in public. So after the war, Argentina maintained an independent spirit as she fiercely disputed borders such as those in Tierra del Fuego, the South Atlantic, and the Antarctic. By 1959, Britain had narrowed the ambit of the Falkland Island dependencies to three groups of islands north of the 60th parallel, the South Sandwich, South Georgia, and the Falklands. Perón did not argue too much about this, mainly because he regarded the desolate and bleak islands as economically weak, and the settled British community there were also a complicating factor. As a devout nationalist himself, he knew other devout nationalists when he saw them. But Argentinian school syllabuses included the Falklands, sorry the Malvinas, on maps as theirs, and the cry went up, The Malvinas are Argentine, which is a cry that was set to music. A generation of Argentinians grew up believing this to be true, and regarding the British as neo-colonial. Retaking the islands from the Brits was seen as a challenge to their national honour. Yet, British politicians before the mid-1960s found it difficult to understand what all the fuss was about. They were dimly aware, with the emphasis on dim, that the Falklands actually were an opportunity. While the rest of the empire was crumbling and seeking independence, here were the Falklanders calling out for a reconnection. They actually waved the Union Jack. They weren't embarrassed. Imperialism and self-determination were as one, as contradictory as that sounds. Ironically, the political party in Britain overseeing 13 years of decoupling of African, Asian and other nations were the Conservatives. Yet the military bases designed for enforcing British power remained largely in place, even in Simonstown in South Africa, which had been a republic since 1910. Others included Hong Kong, Singapore, Aden, Cyprus and of course Gibraltar. So by the 1960s the dispute over the Falklands drifted along, never resolved. They were a bit like her alcoholic uncle, who lived far away and could be forgotten until he staggered into your kitchen trying to fondle the guests. That is not a healthy situation at times of instability. Ask the Ukrainians, and in the future we shall be forced to ask the Taiwanese about a long-term threat from a stronger neighbour. 
In August 1964, British UN Representative Lord Carradine declared that the interests of the inhabitants of these territories are paramount. So then, the British were not going to hand over the Falklands like they'd handed over Ghana and Kenya and India. With these words ringing in the world's ears, Carradine had set in motion a long, drawn-out diplomatic battle and eventually a three-month war with Argentina. In terms of the United Nations Charter Article 73, the people of the Falklands had decreed that they'd be part of the British Empire by way of self-determination. Nothing much happened for a year until, believe it or not, the independence crisis in Rhodesia. Ian Smith's white government and its unilateral declaration of independence shocked Britain, which then faced a rushed resolution in the United Nations General Assembly calling on London and Buenos Aires to proceed without delay to a negotiated solution for the Falklands. From this simple resolution 2065, war would follow. After muddling along for generations, suddenly the Falklands swept into view like an icy sheep-laden freighter, like a drunken alcoholic uncle, and Harold Wilson was facing the venom of the UN over Rhodesia. He realized that because of his spotty left-leaning government and the Cold War schmoozing he was doing, perhaps a quick win for him globally would be to offload the troublesome uncle. So why not do a deal? What of these trivial islands indeed? Wilson ordered the negotiations of their future to begin immediately, and the negotiations themselves lent credence to the Argentinian claim. This raised expectations in Buenos Aires. British national interests began to overshadow what Falkland Islanders preferred themselves. What cowardice, avarice and duplicity lie at the heart of politicians? Marked by the beast, they plot and plan like an alien race, foisted on the planet to feast on our hopes. Sorry, a little hubris. As all of this began to shake the folks of the islands, an Argentinian foreign minister stepped out of the shadows into the bright lights of international geopolitics. Please applaud lawyer and former ambassador to Chile, Nicanor Costa Mendes. Short and perky, cosmopolitan and enjoyer of English clothes and beautiful women, Costa Mendes was an expert in international relations. But he was an Argentinian nationalist at heart. He realized early on that the Falklands could be useful as more than a slogan in domestic politics. They could be a diversion. Now all good politicians need slogans and diversions. Ask Vladimir Putin seeking to begin World War III using slogans like denazification and diversions like invading the Ukraine. Soon Vlad the invader will be screaming Russia uber alles from his red square lectern. Back to our story. Mendes established the Instituto y Museo Nacional de las Islas Malvinas e Adjacencias, an offshoot of the old Antarctic Institute of Buenos Aires. A committee for the recovery of the Malvinas was revived, and the Anglo-Argentine community gave all of this their blessing. A series of meetings were held in London starting in July 1966, which were known as the Hola Beltramino Talks, and they were held in secret. The moves were predicated on the idea to transfer ownership of the Falklands. The islanders did not know this was London's position. In September 1966, a group of armed Peronist youths, known as the New Argentina Movement, hijacked a Dakota over Patagonia and flew to Port Stanley, landed on the racecourse and promptly arrested two officials who arrived to see what was going on. This was known somewhat grandiosely as Operation Condor, 
which turned to farce when the plane sank into the soft ground. Royal Marines rounded up the NAM youths and sent them home back to Argentina. The leader of the group was murdered by the Argentinian military junta later. This was proof of the internal feud between the Peronists and the military. The incident did reveal one other thing, the island's vulnerability to surprise attack from the mainland. The British thought the Falklands could be defended in part by their navy based at South Africa's Simonstown, but that was a week sailing away from the Falklands. So the British increased what they called the Marines' tripwire force on the island to 40 and allocated them hovercraft as their new mobile attack vehicle. They very swiftly became immobile as they all broke down. The next military tactic was to rely on a quick response by their famous navy. London believed for the next 16 years that Buenos Aires would be too afraid of their navy to consider an invasion. In what was not the smartest move, at the same time as they stuck to the strategy, the British political establishment began to conspire to cut the British Navy's expenditure. The Argentinians noticed. By November 1967, the negotiations had reached foreign minister stage and a meeting took place in New York between Costa Mendes and the new British Foreign Secretary George Brown. The latter did not appear to be well informed and he told Mendes that London would convince the Falkland Islanders about the benefits of links to the mainland, i.e. Argentina. Talk about being sold down the river plate. The Argentinians guaranteed community of customs, language and lifestyle. They didn't want a colony, they said. They wanted sovereignty, as the Chinese did when they took Hong Kong back from the British. As we've seen there, customs, language and lifestyle would be slowly eroded until the former colony is what we see today, a gory mess of Beijing instituted oppression, economy floundering, its ICUs full of coronavirus. The British Parliament, meanwhile, had heard nothing for two years, despite all this negotiating going on behind Foreign Office closed doors. The island's governor of the time was Sir Cosmo Haskard, who travelled to London in 1967 and was told about the negotiations. He was also told to say nothing to the islanders. When he returned to Port Stanley and pressed for details, his taciturnity, as the Times' History of the Falklands puts it, aroused widespread alarm. Some islanders drafted a letter to the Times sensing what was going on. They warned about not being consulted. They said they did not want to become Argentinians. Sitting in his Dickensian office in London at that very moment was eccentric barrister and Antarctic file and former diplomat at the British Embassy in Buenos Aires, William Hunter Christie. An enthusiast of the Falklands, he set up the Falkland Islands Emergency Committee at his office in Lincoln's Inn. Those on the right wing of the Conservative Party were duly advised, along with Labour MP Clifford Kenyon, who would henceforth provide the Falklands' views to British politicians. British pressure groups, as we know, are never so effective as when they are convinced that ministers and civil servants are hatching plots behind their backs. Of course, that is exactly what was happening. I reminded everyone last podcast what happens if you make negotiations secret, they backfire. Hardly had the new Falklands policy of hand back to Argentina been formulated by the Foreign Office before it exploded in shame and ignominy. George Brown resigned. He knew what was coming. London continued negotiations with Buenos Aires and meanwhile sent Harold Wilson's spokesperson, Lord Chalfont, to Port Stanley to spin a few lines. Chalfont spent three days traversing the islands and his visit did not go well. 
He extolled the virtues of a new deal with Argentina. An air service was coming, people. The Falklands up to then had only been accessible by sea. More schools and hospitals. A new market for their produce. Yay! Boo! was the retort. Hitler's banners and placards bedecked with No sellout! and The Falklands are British! Local opinion did not, of course, take into account the fact that England was 8,000 miles away and facing economic pressures. The British government's view was very much aligned to the Argentinians at this time. In December 1968, government announced that no transfer would be made against the wishes of the islanders. The Tory opposition said they'd strike the whole matter from the table if put in power, and put in power they were. By 1970, Wilson's government was gone. In its place, the Tory administration nominated technocrat David Scott as the new Falklands negotiator. He faced a problem. Some new arrangement with the islands was urgent. The Falkland Islands Company vessel called Darwin was on its last legs. Its monthly run to Montevideo was losing money heavily. It was going to be withdrawn at the end of 1971. The only other regular cargo ship was Ace, commuting four times a year to Tilbury and carrying wool and general supplies. An air link was the only solution, but who was going to provide it? So the 1971 communications agreement between Buenos Aires and London followed. The British would build the airstrip and provide shipping links to the Argentine mainland. The Argentinians would run the air service. One problem was the Argentinians immediately marketed the flight as domestic, the British as international. The plane itself would be painted white with no national identity. The Argentinians wouldn't charge tax on the islanders nor conscript them and vice versa. It became known as the policy of contact. As you're going to hear next episode, the policy was based on the erroneous belief that the Falklanders would eventually be assimilated into the ostensibly European mainland community of Argentina. There were thousands of Anglo-Argentinians living in Buenos Aires who said they wanted the Falklands to become the Malvinas, and they said this in English too. Furthermore, the descendants of Scots and Welsh settlers lived in Patagonia. However, the Welsh of Puerto Madrein are fully-fledged Argentinians and proud of it. Their lingua franca is Spanish and Welsh, not English and Welsh. What happened next is for next episode, as we build towards the outbreak of war, which formally began in April 1982. Then the series will follow the war week by week, from April until its end in June. Right now it's time to anchor the Darwin, so to speak. Please rate the podcast on iTunes if you have the inclination, or you can head off to my website, abwarpodcast.com, and email me from there. Or if you're in a rush, you can follow me on Twitter, or direct message me, at Des Latham. The theme to this series is a brilliant composition by Kevin MacLeod called Devastation and Revenge. Thanks, Kevin, for letting me use bits of your highly evocative composition. So until next, goodbye. Mm-hmm.